From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this week I'd like to share with you for our end of the year show some things about languages and what happens when they come together, what it means when a language is mixed, how mixed languages get, what that says about some languages that are near and dear to us. And I'm doing that partly as an excuse to dip a bit into Yiddish, because a lot of you ask me to talk about Yiddish, the whole idea being what is Yiddish? What is this peculiar language that seems so mixed up? What happened to it? How do linguists classify it? And it is a good question, and it leads us to other things that we need to look at when we think about the fact that no language is unmixed. Languages mix in different ways. I couldn't tell you all of them within one or even two of these shows, but we need to broach the subject. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's start with this little passage from the musical Ragtime. This is Tata, father, and his little girl, and they're coming to America, and at one point they sing this little tune. A shtetl is America, So that's a shtetl is America. That's America is a shtetl, a nice little town. Then Amachaya Chleben. Those of you who listen to this and don't happen to know Yiddish, I'm sure there are very few such people, but it's not Amachaya Chleben. It's Amachaya Chleben. And so it's a wonder, I swear. America is a shtetl. America is a small, familiar town. It's a wonder, I swear. That's what they're singing here. That is the Yiddish language. And the question is, what is Yiddish? Because Yiddish's vocabulary is quite mixed. There's a lot of German in there. Okay, fine. Awful lot of Hebrew in there. And then there are a bunch of Slavic words, Russian-y, Polish-y words that are in there. And they're all mixed together. And so you might think that Yiddish is just this very mixed language. And it would stand to reason because you had people who were speaking a kind of German and they were in lands where Slavic languages were spoken. They were Jewish people, and so Hebrew played a role in their liturgical lives and beyond. So you might think, well, it's a bunch of Hebrew and a bunch of Polish and some Aramaic dropped in there and some German, and it's just a big Mishala or whatever somebody would say in Yiddish. You know, that's not quite the way the linguist would analyze it. And what Yiddish actually is can be a little awkward to just lay it right out, but what something was can be quite different from what it is and what it stands for culturally. And basically, yes, Yiddish has a mixed vocabulary, but in terms of how a linguist would classify it, Yiddish is a kind of German. Yes, for the rather obvious reason that's rather awkward, given German history, etc. But the fact is that language that today is Yiddish began as a kind of German, and it's still identifiable 
as a kind of German. And so we can even be specific. It's not the kind of German that we're most familiar with if we're American studenty types. It's actually a southern kind of German that it came from, southeastern specifically. And so it would be things like you know the Bavarian dialects that would be closer to the mark. And we're talking about it being derived from Middle High German. I know from the outside, it always sounds like that's something somebody's making up. Early High Polish or something like that. But there isn't such a thing as Middle High German, and that's what it came from. So Southeastern dialects of Middle High German would take us pretty much where we need to go. That's what it is. And so, yes, there is Slavic in there. So Tate for father, that's Slavic. Or if you want to call a grandfather a Zeta, that is Slavic. A grandmother is a Boba, that's Slavic. Then there's just Hebrew all over the place. So, for example, one might hear somebody say in Yiddish something like, Guy, that's go. Kaken is, is shit, like kaka. Oifen is, think of it as kind of on it or in it. And then yam is sea. So, is go shit in the ocean. But yam is a Hebrew word. So what's that doing in there? Well, we know what it's doing in there, but a basic word like that. So the Hebrew words aren't only for things like menorahs. It's also for the ocean. There's nothing Jewish about an ocean, but there are so many Hebrew words that even with something as basic as that, the word is yam and not something from German. So we've got mixture, but the mixture is like this. Now, of course, people disagree violently about this, but roughly Yiddish is about 70% German words. Then the Hebrew part is about 20%. So that's maybe one in five. I suspect that's a little high, but nobody asked me. And then the Slavic words are about one in 10. So it's mostly German. Now you've got the Slavic and the Hebrew in there, but it's mostly German. And it's really German in terms of its grammar as well. And so, for example, this is from the producers. And this is from the opening introductory number that the Nathan Lane Max Bialystok character does. And at one point he talks about how his mentor died. And there's this wonderful passage that always makes me laugh. Here it is. I've spent my entire life in the theater. I was a protege of the great Boris Tomaszewski. Yes, he taught me everything I know. I'll never forget, he, he turned to me on his deathbed and said, Maxwell, Alle Menschen müssen machen, Hayden to Gagatzen Kaschen Pischen Pippikachen. What does that mean? Who knows, I don't speak Yiddish. Strangely enough, neither did he. Now, notice the beginning of what this person supposedly said. So, Alle Menschen müssen machen. Well, that's Yiddish, and frankly, if you know German, you can get that. Alla mensen, all men, musamakin, must make. Now, if that person kept going, they would hit some Hebrew words and some Slavic words, but the, the heart of this is that it started as a German dialect. And so what it means is that with Yiddish, if you happen to have a familiarity with the southern German dialects and or if you get used to the fact that a lot of what you're used to being as ah in the high modern German that we learn is o in Yiddish because it's a different dialect of German, then you see that what this is in terms of where we would put it on the family tree 
is it started as a dialect of German. Now, you don't want to call it that now. Culturally, a Yiddish speaker is not thinking of themselves as speaking a dialect of German, of course. And so these names are arbitrary and they don't fit the essence of our lived human lives. But it begins as an offshoot of German. So, for example, I remember once... um, I worked in a seafood market. It was the most horrific job I've ever had. You had to always stand up, at least when you were low on the totem pole. You had to undress the shrimp and uh, some of the people I worked with, some stories I could tell that are not the sort of thing I like to share in the valley. But I do remember one of the lighter moments. There was maybe one light moment, and it was this one, is that the guys were talking about sports. And as you can imagine, I was not in that conversation, but I was kind of listening. And one person mentioned something that had happened in, say, 1956 instead of 10 minutes ago. And somebody else said, don't be scraping up that shit from 1912. And I thought that was funny because there's something funny about 1912. Well, I'm going to scrape up some shit from 1936. This is Yiddle Mitten Fiddle. This is a wonderful movie. I would suggest that you watch it with subtitles since it's in Yiddish. But this is the wonderful title song. This is sung by Molly Pecan. Let's go through this a little bit and we'll see that this is German, but with an awful lot of, for example, Hebrew bedecking it. Now you must admit that that's a catchy little song, even if you don't know what she's saying. This is a very long time ago, muddy soundtrack. But, you know, it's basically over fields and roads and on a wagon of hay with sun and wind and rain travel to musicians. So that's what she's saying. But the thing is, for example, let's say a wagen. Wagen, you know, that's car in German. Well, in this, it's wagen. But basically, it's the same word. Or something like, um, so say, who are they? Well, that would be zocht in German, zocht in Yiddish. This is a different and southern dialect, but you can see the relationship. But there are things that kind of, you know, stick in. And so, for example, and that's why would you be angry? And so, as you can imagine because of how it sounds, is angry. Well, it's kas. That's not a German word. Kas is, well, it's a Yiddish word, but that word for anger comes from Hebrew. So if you are a Hebrew speaker, kas, that's what that is. They could have used the German word for anger, but instead they used the Hebrew word for anger, and we like that better. But it's decorated in there. It's like if somebody has a cake smashed on there. That's actually a terrible analogy, but basically it's like raisins in the cake, if that's the kind of cake that you like. Or what's another example in there? Um, she says, achidish, oh, achidish. Well, that means, oh, a novelty, oh, a novelty. Well, that, if you've had even Hebrew school Hebrew and not learned Hebrew, remember, chadash, chadash for new. Well, this chidash, ah, chidash, that novelty, once again, that's from Hebrew in what is a southeastern dialect of Middle High German. And so she's singing this wonderful song. But, you know, if you if you're German, I'm going to pretend I'm German. If the soundtrack were cleaner, 
I assume that somebody who speaks today's high German could wrap their ears around that and get 90% of it. And so that's the nature of the mixture of this language. And you know, I was a big-headed boy. I was a big-headed little boy, and I was taking Yamaha piano lessons. I don't remember what the hell we learned. The only thing I remember is that one teacher once lost her contact lens. It was my first exposure to that, and it was this hard little job, and she lost it. We never found it. That's what I remember. But other than that, I remember that I was in love with Shirley. Shirley was this adorable little girl we used to walk around holding hands. She always wore these burgundy overalls. She probably didn't, but in my memory, that's what she's always wearing. And I thought we were in love. But then one day we ran outside and she started talking to her parents and I didn't understand what they were saying. To this day, I have a putty mile stroke every time I think about that. I felt so lost, so ignorant, and I felt like I had lost my first girlfriend. And so I asked my mother, what are they doing? Why can't I understand? And she said, they're speaking a different language, Jughead. And I said, well, what does that mean? So she went and she asked them, what are you speaking? And they said, we're speaking Hebrew. So she came to me and she said, well, you know, they're speaking Hebrew. And I said, well, why don't we speak Hebrew? And I literally cried like the child that I was on the way home because I just felt left out. Yes, that was the beginning of me sitting here and doing this. What does that have to do with Yiddish? Well, I went to school and I talked about this. And as it happened, a Hebrew school was taught contiguously to this Montessori school that I was at. Somebody asked Rabbi Berkowitz to give me something to make me think that I was learning Hebrew. And I have it right here in my hands. It is framed. It is yellowed. It is the Aleph Bays. This was my introduction to another writing system. And it wasn't until much later that I realized, wait a minute, this isn't the Hebrew alphabet, whatever they're learning in this Hebrew school. This is the Yiddish alphabet. My point being that another reason that you kind of think, well, Yiddish is just completely different is because it's written with this Hebrew alphabet, which is gorgeous. And as I always say, I want to eat the Hebrew alphabet. And I have because somebody sent me these cookie cups. Anyway, point being, you want to eat it, but that makes it look like Yiddish is somehow Hebrew, like it is Hebrew. But remember that writing is not language. And so what it really is, is that you have the rather queer circumstance of Hebrew letters that are indicating this South, Eastern, Middle High German dialect. It's the funniest thing. But I am holding the olive bays in its frame right here. You know I'm not holding it. I'm trying to create a picture, but pretend that I'm sitting here with tears rolling down my face. It's actually hanging on the wall of my office, but I'm holding it metaphorically right here. So, That is the Yiddish story. But, you know, Yiddish isn't the only language. It'd be nice, but there actually are others, or at least there's one other one. And that is English, and it can teach a similar lesson. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. English is a highly mixed language, first of all, in terms of its vocabulary. But, you know, that's 
an old story. We've got a bunch of French, we've got a bunch of Norse, we've got a bunch of Latin. I've talked about that. But English is mixed beyond that. And actually, this is something that research has identified, especially over about the past 20 years. There are holdouts, as there always are. But as Mr. Thomas Kuhn told us, that's how science works, that generations die out and new generations end up having their ideas win the day, at least for about 10 seconds. And so English is a very mixed grammar. English is a Germanic language, supposedly. It is supposed to be in the same family as German and Yiddish and Swedish and the gang. But gosh, English has strange grammar for that. For example, I'm going to say something like, do I walk to the store when it's a nice day? And that sounds perfectly normal to us, but it's kind of odd. Why did I say do? Shouldn't I have said, walk I to the store on a nice day? That's the way it would be in any other language we can think of that's European. Walk I to the store. And it did used to be that way. But instead, we say, do I walk to the store? Why the do? What's that doing there? Or let's say that I'm going to negate a sentence like that. So, I walk not to the store. Isn't that what it should be? Like in German, you use nicht or something like that. Or French, you use pas. Or something like, I not walk to the store. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? But instead, I have to say, I do not walk to the store. I do not walk to the store. Have you ever thought about how odd that is? Why do we have to say do so much? Notice that if you've ever tried to learn another language, that's one of the first things you have to unlearn. You don't use faire that way in French. You don't use machen or tun that way in German. Yes, German specialists, I know. I'll get to it. You don't use do words like that. Really, in probably any language that you know, it's only... In English, that you have to say, I do not walk to the store. Why? Well, the reason for that is that there are languages in the world other than English where do is used exactly that way. And it is the languages that were spoken on the island of Britain before Germanic speakers got there. And I'm talking about languages represented today by the likes of Welsh, by the likes of the now alive, but in a very cherished way, it kind of died. Cornish or Breton, spoken over across the channel in France. These are Celtic languages, and they actually use do in exactly that way. And even more, there's the Shakespearean thing. I do tell you that Guy Fawkes is about to blow up the church or something like that. And so they use do all over the place for no reason that anybody can think of. It's a very strange way of using do. But that means that There are two groups of languages in the world where do is used in that way. One of them is Celtic languages. One of those groups of languages is one, English. So what that means is that when Anglo-Saxon, when Old English was brought over to England, people who spoke Celtic languages picked up English, but they shaped it to their needs, just like people who created Yiddish took German and shaped it to their needs and being. So you end up having this tick. It's this do tick which starts with Celtic, and now English has it too, because, you know, I guess we thought it was cute. Well, that means that we have a strange grammar. Okay, now, yes, in any German except for Der Spiegel's high German, you can use do in a way that's kind of like this. I know what kinds of people are going to be writing me about this, but the thing is, it's not the same thing. So, for example, actually, let's go down to Bavaria. You can say... I will cut open your bag. You can just say that. Of course, it would be in Bavarian German, which that was not. But So, I will cut open your bag. But you can also say, I'll do your bag cut open. Or, I'll do your bag cut open. 
If you're trying to stress something, then you end up using do in a way that sounds kind of like do, but actually it's different. And that's because if you say, I'll do your bag cut open, or I'll do your bag cut open, that has a meaning. You only use do then when you happen to be emphasizing something, and you don't really have to. It's optional then. It is, folks, actually that pragmatic kind of thing. It kind of conveys attitude and emphasis in that way that I've tried to get across on some of our shows. But that's different from English, where you absolutely have to use do whenever you make a sentence negative, whenever you make it into a question. You have to do it. It's a tick. Nobody can explain why my older daughter is now going through a phase where she's enjoying swallowing air and belching, just purely recreationally. And I said, must you do that? And I did put it that way. And she said, well, it feels good to do it. And now I kind of can't stop. That's a tick. Do is also a tick. And that means that we have a mixed grammar in that we have something in it that we do every 10 seconds that has no business in a Germanic language, and yet we still call it English. So, for example, it's time for one. This is Camelot. This is 1960. This is Julie Andrews and Richard Burton singing. And this is What Do the Simple Folk Do? Now, listen to the first stanza of it. What do the simple folk do to help them escape when they're blue? The shepherd who is ailing, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who is wailing from nailing his thumb. When they're beset and besieged, the folk not noblessly obliged. However do they manage to shed their weary lot? Oh, what do simple folk do? We do not. And then consider... That if it weren't for this this do, then it would just be, what do the simple folk? That would just be it. What do they? Not what do they do. That's really weird. Or, here's one. We're often told that there's present, past, and future. So, I build, I built, I will build. Bullshit. That is not how English works. And this is how you know. Let's say that there's somebody named... Let's call him Walter. And Walter is, you know, going brick by brick by brick. And Walter is building a wall. He's building a house. So you ask Walter, what are you doing, Walter? If Walter answers, I build a house. (laughs) If that's his answer, you know that he didn't grow up speaking English. Because if somebody asks, what are you doing, Walter? The answer is not, I build a house. Not I build a house. I'm building a house. If you think about it, I build a house is very narrow. That's habitual. So what do you do when you get upset? Well, I build a house because that makes me feel better. But that's different. Not if somebody says, what are you doing, Walter? We use ing too much. Talk about ticks and belching and do and stuff. We use ing beyond what most languages use it for. So I am building a house. If I were speaking Spanish, that would be I am right now in the process of building a house and therefore I can't help you make popcorn or something like that. I am building it right now, progressive now. In English, we just use it all the time. And that is something that is also true of these Celtic languages. That is very Welshy. And so that creeps into English because of that contact. So once again, it's strange. So here are the simple folk again. The stanza again. What do the simple folk do to help them escape when they're blue? The 
shepherd who is ailing, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who is wailing from nailing his thumb. So it should be what do the simple folk to help them escape when they're blue? Well, I joined to help them escape when they're blue. That didn't work. The shepherd who is ailing. No, it should be the shepherd who ails, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who wails from nailing his thumb. Too much ing. It sounds perfectly normal to us, but if you translate it into any other language, much less do, and not so much of this ing. Now. Some of you are wondering, well, if English is Germanic in Celtic, then how come we're not using a whole bunch of Celtic-y words the way, for example, Yiddish speakers are using all these words from Hebrew and Slavic? That is a very good question. And the fact is that sometimes grammar ends up mixing, but the words don't. That actually happens all over the world. And that, for reasons that I don't know will ever be identified, although, you know, People who are listening to this, please suggest some. But Britain was one of those cases, but not completely. Until about 10 minutes ago, if you went way out into the country, I mean, like way out, like there are no roads and there's no oxygen, way out into the country, you could find somebody who would have a different set of numbers that they would use if they wanted to count their cows or count their sheep or they're playing some game that involves getting down on your knees and passing the time or various little nooks and crannies of life. There were these other numbers. So they knew they're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But if you kind of really got into the society, drank you know, mead with them or whatever they were drinking, then they would let you know that they had these other numbers. And it was kind of different from town to town. But a typical example would be ain't a pain a para petera pump, ithy mithy or a lava a dig. I mean it. These are English speakers. These are not Welsh people. They don't speak Welsh. But after a while, that's it. We've got this other set of numbers. And it would go ain't a pain a para petera pump, ithy mithy or a lava a dig. And that's for counting sheep or playing marbles or scratching your butt or something like that. That was there. Now you think to yourself, what the fuck were those? Wait, I said I would keep this show clean. And so I'm not going to say that. So I didn't say that. What in the world were those numbers? Well, the numbers in Welsh give us a clue. So, Aina, well in Welsh, one, un, okay. Or, Aina, Pena, Para, Pedra, Pump. Four and five in Welsh, Pedwar, Pump. Clearly, this isn't an accident. Or, Ithi, Mithi, or Lavra, Dig. Well, Deg in Welsh is ten. What these numbers were is that these people were descended from people who originally spoke Celtic languages. And, you know, one of the things that's most deeply ingrained when you speak is your numbers. And so they would have held on. And even when nobody speaks anything like Welsh anymore, well, those numbers were going to stick if you wanted to count some sheep or play marbles or something with the bones of a cow or whatever they were doing. And so that means that there were some words from Celtic that were kept in England for a while. And those numbers are always interesting, partly because, for example, I'm using this set here where 8, 9, 10 is or lavera dig. In some places, it was hovera, dovera, dick. And that is what hickory, dickory, dock is. I've mentioned that in a previous show, but it's so much fun. You think, what is hickory, dickory, dock? Hickory is wood. Dickory, we won't get into it. Dock doesn't seem to have anything to do with the other two. Those were Celtic numbers, and that's why it's about a clock. Or eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Aina, paina, 
the para para messes it up. But ain't a pena, eeny meeny, eeny meeny miny mo is also from those numbers. Something to know is that tigger was not the original word. Nobody would wish to catch a tiger by its toe, and nobody would describe a tiger as hollering. It was a different word than tigger. Nevertheless, it all goes back to these Celtic numbers. And yet, my point is, English isn't Celtic. So it's got all sorts of Celticisms. You know I could go on with these for an hour and a half, and I'm not going to do that to you. English has got a very mixed grammar. Nevertheless, in the grand scheme of things, it has remained a Germanic language. So what is a Germanic language? Well, for example, Grimm's Law. And yes, those brothers Grimm that wrote the versions of stories that are now more familiar from Disney and guiltily we like them better. Read some of those Grimm's fairy tales. They've got all this death and grayness and menstruation and threats. I really don't like those versions. I want it to be pretty colors in 1945. But these men were geniuses and one of them came up with Grimm's Law, which is simply this, that there are sound changes that happen in Germanic languages that aren't in the other languages of the big Indo-European family. And so one of the things is that if you've got your P in Latin and Greek and Sanskrit and Irish, although that's a little more complicated, but all the rest, that P is an F in a Germanic language. So for example, pater, father in Latin, pita in Sanskrit, pachar in Pashto, etc. P, P, P. But we call it a father in the same way as you talk about pedal extremities, but then we call it a foot and so on. So that P to F thing, there are a bunch of those. And that makes a language Germanic. English has still got all of that stuff. You know where I first heard of pater? From the fact that you can pretentiously use it in English and, and you might call your father pater. I don't know who still does. But you know where I heard it? When I was about 14, for some reason, I was listening to an old radio episode of Blondie. Blondie, you know, Blondie is still running. It's been running, I think, since 1933. It just goes on and on, the comic strip. Well, you just know that they made that into, it was a radio show, it was a TV show, it was a series of movies. The radio show flattened it out into this lame brain sitcom. Of course, I've heard all of the surviving episodes. And I remember the first one I heard had this little pater joke. And I'm just playing this because I'm just laying out my stupid history here. This is me listening to NPR sometime during the Carter administration. And I remember hearing this stupid joke about pater. Look, have you been fighting today? Oh, perish the thought. Ridiculous. No, no, look, just answer yes or no, that's all. Yes or no. No, Peter. Hey, what is this Peter business? What is this? Oh, don't you know, old chap? That's British for Latin for my old man. Look, now, what goes on here? Wait a minute, Dagwood. I know. It's what Miss Ellerby said. You mean that I look like a great Dane? No. That Alexander might be a great actor. He's being an actor. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Oh, yeah, I get it now, yeah. Well, Alexander, you just don't talk like yourself. Yeah, and you don't act like a real bumstead either. Why, Dad, if I ever shall again, I'm thinking of changing my name. Alexander. Yes, Peter? And don't call me Peter, I'll call you Peter. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. A good Germanic language has strong verbs, meaning the irregular kind of messed up ones. Run, ran, think, thought. <laughs> Why? Give, gave. The ones that change in ways where you just kind of have to know. There are a whole bunch of them. English has got as many of those as any other Germanic language. We're talking about the deep stuff. This is the family stuff. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear. It doesn't matter whether you married somebody who's quite different from anybody else in the family. It's really what you are. It's your DNA. It's your predilections. It's the scrambled eggs that you had when you were little. I mean, we're talking about the dirt. So remember I talked about this verb second business. And so you don't want to go there, retorted Hermione, said Ron. That's very Germanic, very particular to it in terms of the surrounding languages. And of course, English has that. And even the numbers, one, two, three, four, five. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf. Same thing. So one, Eins, same thing. Two, zwei, 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 two, 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 the same thing. Drei is three. Vier is to us a weird way of saying four. Fünf is a better way of saying five. It's the same thing, the deep-seated stuff. So English is a mixed language, but really to a linguist, it's still Germanic. Nobody would say that it has become a Celtic language. So do languages really mix? They do. They get really mixed. And so, for example, let's go to Ecuador. We are dealing with people who have left their Quechua-speaking villages. Quechua is a leading indigenous language of the Andes. And they go to the city. They go to, for example, Quito, the capital of Ecuador. And there, Spanish is spoken. They learn Spanish. They come home. And they've learned this new way of speaking among themselves, where they speak Quechua, but plug in all Spanish words, media lengua. So it's this language in the middle. That sounds like a party trick, but no, it's actually spoken. And it ends up being passed on to kids. Now, this is how a language really mixes. And so, for example, imagine we're going to say, how many plates do we have for the food? Now, in Spanish, that would be cuántos platas tenemos para la comida? Okay, so cuántos platas, so how many plates tenemos do we have, notice that do, it should just be have we, but cuántos platas tenemos, have we, para la comida, for the food. Okay, now, listen to how this comes out in media lengua. ¿Cuánto platutata what in the world is that? Well, for one thing, in media lengua, it's cuánto platotata. What's the ta? In Spanish, cuántos platas, good Indo-European. But here in media lengua, they're saying, cuánto platotata. That ta is from Quechua, and it's how you mark that something's an object. How many plates do we have for the food? We have plates, so the plates are the object. Well, in Quechua, you have to mark that. It's like it's in Latin. It's with ta. Well, in media lengua, you take that Quechua ta, and you plug that on there. And so you're speaking Quechua, but you're plugging in the Spanish words. So, cuántos platas in Spanish tenemos? Well, in media lengua, teninchi. Well, what's the ninchi? That ninchi is the Quechua first person plural we ending. Just plug it on there. And then finally, para la comida, for the food. Well, in media lengua, it's comida pak. Comida pak. It sounds like something that's going to try to elect Elizabeth Warren or something like that. But it's not a pack. The pak means for. 
So Spanish has para la comida, for the food. In Quechua, you would have food pack, food for. And so cuanto plato tata teninchi comida pack. That's not Spanish. Then again, it's not Quechua. You can imagine being a Quechua speaker. And well, why don't I understand a single word in this? What it is, is Spanish words with the Quechua endings. It's also Quechua word order and Quechua sounds. Oh, what's that I hear? Oh, yeah. That's the sound of Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I heard this all the time. It was also the Soul Train theme song for a long time. But in Philadelphia, any marching band, I mean, it was just coming out of your faucet. And I'm playing it because I'm just, I wanted to play it. I'm sorry, I wanted to use this for a while. It's the end of the year. Listen to some disco. By the way, folks, if you want to know what fret, etch, and obese have in common, well, you know, you've got to get Slate Plus for a nominal fee. You can not only hear little ending segments, it's like a a tag on an old sitcom, ending segments where I talk about often things quite unrelated to the topic of the show, but just things that tickle my fancy. You get to hear that. And you don't have to hear me or anybody else do any ads. You just get the show plus the extra thing. And the money doesn't just line my pockets. The money is to pay not only for Lexicon Valley, but for all of the other superior podcasts that Slate does. It's money for that. It's a nominal fee. You get extra bits, including with the other podcasts. And you don't have to listen to any commercials. Creoles are also really mixed languages. So, for example... You're in South America. You're in Suriname, a country that's on the northern coast of South America. It is a tropical nation. There was plantation slavery there. There were slaves brought there speaking many languages to work sugar plantations. It was the English who were the overlords at first. And well, you know, you're an adult slave. Nobody's terribly interested in you learning language. You are not terribly interested in embracing the language of these violent oppressors. And yet you got to talk sometimes to them, sometimes to these other Africans who speak languages that you've never heard of. So what you end up getting is a collection of a few hundred English words, and you come up with a grammar to put them together with based on shreds and shards of the languages that you and the other slaves speak. And next thing you know, you have a new thing. In Suriname, that new thing was called Sranan. Sranan is a real language. If you go to Paramaribo, the capital of Suriname, you find that people of all colors communicate familiarly in this language, Sranan, which we almost never hear anything about in the United States. It's one of my favorite creoles for that and many reasons. But here is an example of it. There was a guy, Henry Franz de Ziel. He went by the name Trefossa. Trefossa was, is Suriname's most famous poet. He's not alive anymore, but he is one of many people who demonstrated that Creoles are real languages in that, for example, you can write beautiful poetry in them. And so here I'm going to play you one of his most famous poems sung by a person. She's doing it under me now. And let's hear this line that she sings. No carry me for Luku, no one Don't call me to look anywhere is what that line meant. Don't call me to look anywhere. But what she said was, 
no kari mi fuluku no wampet. Now, the damnedest thing is that all those words are English. No kari mi fuluku no wampet. No call me for look no one place. Those are English words, but they're put together in a way that's quite unfamiliar to us. And one thing that might throw us is that everything in that sentence except for one, one, ends in a vowel. No kari mi fuluku no wampe. That's not what English is like. In English, we have words like get. That's English. But in Sranan, almost everything ends in a vowel because the African languages that its creators spoke tended to be that way. So it's a very different sound from English. So you get interesting things. At one point, she says, and, and Mike, if you could play this part, Te nawantiri kriki far away. Te nawantiri kriki far away. Far away. So, all the way to a quiet stream far away. Tiri, creaky. Creaky is stream. Tiri is quiet. Why in the world is that quiet? Because it's from still. And so, still. Now, if you are an African language, you probably don't have words that begin with st. We're used to that. So, instead of still, imagine if it's just till. Now, you want it to end in a vowel. So how about tilly? And then suppose you change the L to the R because L's and R's like to dance. Tiri. So that's why you have tiri. So here it is. It comes from English words. But if tiri is quiet, really, we've crossed a line and it's a different language. Or at one point, lon miwani lon. So I absolutely want to run. I've got to get away from here. Run. I want to run. Putting it in that way, that's an African structure. Run, I want to run, means I really want to run. In English, we would more likely say, I really want to run. We don't say, run, I want to run. That's an African thing. So this is not English. It's African, though, only in a general kind of sketch. Most of the grammars of the African languages that this language's creators spoke is not in Sranan. So it's not an African language per se either. Rather, it's some English some African language grammars. It was one in particular that contributed to this and then a couple of others on the side. And then with those elements, it ended up being stretched and morphed and shaped into a brand new language of its own by expanding those original elements themselves rather than copying English or African languages. And so Creoles start from pigeons then they become real languages, but those real languages have less of the meaningless and overly complicated junk that any old language has just because human brains, for some reason, can tolerate it. So that means that Sranan doesn't fit the family tree. It's not English. It's, you can listen to it. You are not listening to any kind of English. But it's not an African language like Fongbe of Togo and Benin either. It's its own thing. It doesn't fit. It's a new creation. So to linguists, that's your mixture. That's what mixed is. Whereas if we go back to Yiddish, Yiddish does fit into the tree. Yiddish fits onto the tree in terms of starting as German, and then a bunch of stuff happens after that. English fits onto the tree. It starts as a Germanic language, and then it's had this kind of sexual thing going on with Celtic, but it's maintained its identity. And so that's what English is. Quick addendum about the last show. Marty Bagatti wrote me, 
and reminded me of something that I thought I really should have said about softeners on the show before last, which is that in texts, as well as in email these days, the way we're using too many exclamation points, as came up in my conversation with Gretchen McCullough, that's a softener. I'm at the point where I'm realizing if I don't pepper many of my messages with those exclamation points, I sound like I'm carrying a hatchet. That's something that's happened. If you don't do it, you're not texting or leaving off the period. You show yourself as an old by putting a period at the end of your messages in text, because when you do that, you're conveying that you are not smiling. So texting has softeners, too. This is the end of the year. And I just wanted to mention, I'm always saying that it's at the point where nobody could possibly have listened to all of my episodes. And many of you have written and said, and I believe you, that you actually have. And if you've done that, you are right now listening to episode number 92. And therefore, I wanted to say at the end of the year, thank you to all of you who are following me. And a special thank you to those who have bothered to listen to me 92 times. When I was asked to do this, I actually, believe it or not, was reluctant. And I just kind of went into it with my eyes covered and walking backwards because, frankly, I had never even heard a podcast. And yes, that was as late as 2016. And as those of you who have listened to all 92 of my shows know, I kind of improvised my way into coming up with a feel and a format. And it has given me great joy that anybody wants to listen to me do it. And so thank you very much for following me through what is now 92 of these little shows. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, you know that word pillacock from last time? That word became pillock, and people are still using it across the pond from me to mean little fool, but at first it had a different kind of reference and we're keeping it clean for this show. So in any case, thank you for letting me know, Michael Newman. And Michael Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. <laughs>